Good morning, one and all. Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2. And let me begin where we are going to end this morning. It is with a citation from an old minister called Robert Murray McShane. Uh, who died at 29 years of age and yet accomplished more in his brief life than many do in 80 or 90 years of life. And uh, McShane saw revival in his town of Dundee where he ministered for only six or seven years before the Lord took him home. And in one of his journals, he penned the following, the only power that can bring a child of Satan and make him a child of God is God himself. Dear friends, the power is not in creatures. The power is not in the power of man. It is not in the power given to ministers. God alone can do it. Dear friends, this is a humbling doctrine. There is no difference between us and the children of wrath. Quite frankly, some of us were more wicked than they. Yet God set his love on us. If there are any here that think they have been chosen because they were better than others, you are grossly mistaken. Grossly mistaken, says Robert Murray McShane. That is where we are going to end as we turn our attention to the book of James and in particular chapter 2. Yes, you've guessed it. We have finished finally with chapter 1. As we make our way through this book, and as we have made our way through the first chapter, we have prayed, or we have made, rather, a number of prayer requests. There are a number of things that are front and center in our minds. There are a number of things we are seeking from the hand of God. We're asking, for example... That God might use James, this book penned almost 2,000 years ago, that God might use James to rescue us from free grace theology. Proponents of free grace theology view faith as a singular act confined to a moment of time. In other words, it is a decision. It is an action. It is a choice, punctiliar in nature, confined to a specific moment of time, divorced from everything that follows it, completely unrelated to what follows it in life. Well, James corrects that thinking, and he demonstrates for us that faith, true faith, is not an act. It is not punctiliar in nature. Faith is an attitude. I pray we've seen that. And if there is any here who has not yet come to grips with this, I pray you will come to grips with it right now. The question is not, have you believed? The question is not, can you look back in your life at a specific moment, something you think you've done, something you are actually trusting in as the reason you're saved? That is not the question. The question is this, do you believe? That's the question. Faith is living. And for James, true faith shows itself in what? 
love. And love shows itself in what? Obedience. And the three are inseparable. Faith leads to love. Love leads to obedience. If there is no obedience, the only possible explanation is what? There is no love. And if there is no love for God, the only possible explanation is what? There really is no faith. That is a dead faith. It is a worthless faith. It is the faith, we're going to see it when we get there in chapter 2, that actually belongs to the demons. Oh, I pray, we are praying that God uses James to rescue us from free grace theology. Easy believism is another way to put it. We're also praying and asking God to use James to convince us of the nature of true religion. Uh, James emphasizes knowledge, and James emphasizes the mind, and truth entering the mind, and us wrestling with and understanding truth. But James makes it clear that all knowledge serves a purpose, and that purpose is life transformation. In a word, we should feel very uncomfortable. We should feel very uncomfortable with ourselves, if this is the case. And we should feel very uncomfortable around those who foam at the mouth over doctrine, yet fail miserably when it comes to applying the most simple biblical truths to their lives. That should terrify us if that is us. If all we have is merely head knowledge and we can pontificate on doctrines and theology in all of its complexities, that's wonderful on, lev on one level. But if it never touches the heart, and if it never issues forth in life, it is not true religion. James makes it clear, we are to be doers of the word. And so he gives 59 commands in 108 verses. Why? He wants to show us the transforming effect of what it means to live continually in the sight of Christ's infinite merit. If I am gazing daily upon the Lord Jesus, the one of whom we've just sung, right? If I am celebrating daily that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, I will also celebrate the fact that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I will understand that grace has, the knowledge of Christ has, a transformative effect. That is true religion. We're praying also, Asking God to use James to force us to evaluate our lives, however uncomfortable that might be. James takes dead aim at the sins of the tongue. He goes after the tongue. He goes after our speech. He goes after our words in almost every chapter, sometimes multiple times in one chapter. He unmasks the sin of showing partiality. Hoarding wealth, stirring contention. He hunts down, he can sniff them out a mile away. He hunts down hypocrites, giving them no rest as he lays bare the inner workings of man's darkened heart. James, the book of James, my friend, please pay attention to this. The book of James will change us or it will condemn us. There are the only two offerings on the table. That's it. There are no other possibilities. Either we will be changed 
as a result of this book, or we will stand condemned. The third, four, or fourth request is this. We're asking James, God, to use James to teach us much practical wisdom. And so he says, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Oh, may I grasp that. In another place, he states, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Am I a peacemaker? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Do I grasp this? Still in another place, he writes, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Proverb after proverb after proverb in the book of James. And James is teaching us that the fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. Are you growing in wisdom? Have we grown in wisdom as we've made our way through the first chapter? Are we rejoicing in the midst of trials? Are we able to see God's hand in them, over them, through them, and around them? Do we understand the source of temptation that it comes from within the darkened heart and how dependent we are upon God's salvific work from beginning to end? Are we taking to heart the wisdom that James is offering us in this epistle? Oh, that is our prayer. We're coming before God. And yes, we're wrestling with this text and we're trying to understand the ins and outs of what James is offering up for us. We're trying to set it in its historical context. What's going on that drives and leads James to say what he says? We're trying to do the hard work of building and constructing that bridge between that day and this day, those lives and our lives. And in all this, we want to see the hand of God. And our desire is to behold God working by His grace in us, through us, transforming us into the image and likeness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray He's answered that to some degree as we finish with chapter 1. And I trust He will continue to answer those prayers as we now embark on our study of chapter 2 to that end. Follow along as I read for us the first 13 verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the, other, to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery 
also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, walk with me. At times it will be a leisurely pace. At other times we're going to pick it up and break into a run as we make our way through these 13 verses. And let me give you four headings. There are three in the sermon notes. I wish I could blame it on someone else. I can't. My mistake. I should have included four. Let me give you four headings as we make our way through these 13 verses. The first heading, simply put, is this. A command. A command. And there you've got it. Verse 1, my brothers, he is speaking to believers, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's the command. Now, what does he mean by this command, show no partiality? We need to proceed carefully. We need to proceed cautiously because it is easy to misunderstand and misapply what he is saying. Let me give you a couple of scenarios to demonstrate this. I'm sitting on a bus, okay? There I am. A 20-year-old male enters the bus. An 80-year-old female enters the bus. The bus is full. I get up and I offer my seat to the 80-year-old woman. Am I guilty of showing partiality? No. That's called what? It's called respect. It's called respecting her for her gender, a woman, and respecting her for her age, and recognizing that and therefore showing preference to her. But no one would ever dare charge me or, or accuse me of having shown partiality. Let's change the scene. I'm standing at an airline ticket counter. And there I am. There's a young man to my right, and he's in military uniform. We're both changing our flights for whatever reason. The employee of this particular airline looks at me. She informs me, yes, we can change your flight, but there will be a $50 fee to do so. She then changes the flight of this young man uh, who's, in, who's in uniform, and she says, because you are military, there is no charge. Is she guilty of showing partiality? No. It's called what? Respect. She is acknowledging that young man's service. The airline has a policy accordingly, and she is implementing that policy just as a way, a simple way, a simple expression of demonstrating respect. Here's a different scene. I'm applying for a job. I was expelled from school when I was 15 years of age, never went back. My first arrest, I say first, was at age 20 for possession, drugs. My most recent arrest and internment was for assault. That is not even half the story, and that is the trajectory I'm on. I've applied for a job. Another guy has applied for the job whose life has, is, looks nothing like mine. Who gets the job? 
the other guy gets the job? Has the employer, has he shown partiality? Is he guilty of undue favoritism? There's a measure of respect operative there, but what's really in play there is simply good old-fashioned common sense, right? Here's another scenario. I'm on a ferry to Center Island. Forgive the context, I'm back in the city of Toronto. There I am at the lakeshore, and I'm going out to Center Island, and I'm on the ferry. A couple hundred yards from the dock of the island, the ferry starts to go down. The lifeboats are loosed. There they are. The captain's voice comes over the loudspeaker. What does he say? Women and children first. Women and children first. And the men don't even have to hear that. It comes naturally. Well, is that captain guilty of showing partiality? Again, no. We are simply, simply speaking of what? Respect. One more. And let's really get fanciful with this one. There I am. I'm standing in the foyer a prior to worship, and a former president of the United States walks through the front doors. Just happens to be in the area, decides he wants to come and worship, or at least attend uh, our worship here at Grace Community Church. Well, I'm in a bit of a tizzy. Run in here. You have to clear out an area because he's got his detail in tow. And so there's certain procedures that have to take place. And there's a certain, I don't know, things that have to happen. And I'm running here, there, everywhere, making sure he's there. Everything's good. Security's tight. I don't do that for anybody else who walks through the front doors that Sunday morning. Am I guilty of showing partiality? No, it's simply called what? Respect for his position, his office. Are you getting the idea? There is such a thing as respect. It's fallen on hard times in our society, sadly. There is such a thing as respect and showing people due respect and preference on account of their age, on account of their gender, on account of their service, on account of their position. James is not denying any of that. James has something, he's no leveler. James is not saying, look, we must boil everybody down to a common level and treat everyone exactly the same. That is not his point. He has something very specific in view. We could substitute that word partiality with the word favoritism. My brothers, show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And as we read on in the text, we discover that James is really thinking about what? Income. Income. Show no favoritism when it comes to a man's income, a woman's earning power. Show no preference, show no partiality, show no favoritism when it comes to this question of rich, powerful, poor, and weak. That is not even to enter into the equation. That is the commandment. And then he builds on it in verse 2. Here's the second word I want you to remember with an example. For if a man wearing, here we go, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? What's the implication? Distinctions that God himself does not make. 
We have made distinctions that are irrelevant in the sight of God. We have made a big deal over outward pomp while ignoring inward grace. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, we don't have preferred seating here at Grace Community Church, but this could play out in a number of different scenarios, couldn't it? And it relates in a number of different ways. I mean, the points of application are numerous. We could expand it, and I think we'd be perfectly right to do so. We could move beyond the question of income. And we could include other factors here, other parameters here. We could throw out the, the whole race card and the issue of race. We could introduce the issue of culture. Low culture, high culture. Urban culture, rural culture. Uh, we could introduce the subject of appearance. What is considered attractive? What is not so attractive? And on and on and we could go adding to this list whereby we treat people or we view people, or we value people, and therefore we show them favoritism or don't show them favoritism on the basis of something that is completely irrelevant in the sight of God. But for some reason, we're gravitating to it. For some reason, it's a big deal for us. Well, we don't have preferred seating here at Grace Community Church, but you take all those different scenarios and parameters and this idea of show, showing favoritism, but you can see how it could apply in a number of different ways. Does income, does race, does culture, does appearance factor into it when I decide who to invite into my home? Now, there's an interesting question. Does income... Race, culture, appearance, factor into it when I decide who I'm actually going to confront because of their sin. Well, he's an easy target because with a lack of income comes a lack of power. What could the possible repercussions be? But a lot of income over here, therefore a lot of power Therefore, the potential for collateral damage is unbelievable. Therefore, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. Therefore, I have made what? Distinctions. And I have shown partiality on the basis of something that is completely irrelevant in the sight of God. When it comes to choosing church leaders, when it comes to assigning tasks and responsibilities, when it comes to who I spend my time with on a Sunday morning, what are the factors that play into my decision-making process when uh, I work through all these things consciously and subconsciously? This is what James is after in the text. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The third heading I want you to get is this. Reasons, reasons, reasons. Begins in verse 5, his reasoning. He wants them to understand the command He's given them a very vivid illustration, which must have been particularly relevant to their context. I'm assuming it was especially relevant to the context of that day, because in James' day, there was no such thing as a middle class. There was only the upper class and the lower class. This, therefore, was a real problem. It's why he hones in on that illustration. And so sticking with the illustration and this parameter, this idea of income as a reason for showing partiality, he now gives three compelling reasons for obeying the commandment back in verse 1. 
And he gives these three reasons by way of questions. Verse 5, listen, my beloved. Here's the first one. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Here's the second reason. Another question. Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And now he gives, he adds a third compelling reason by way of another question. So it's three questions. Bang, bang, bang. Third one in verse 7. Are they, the rich, not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so here's my command. My brother, show no partialities. You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's the illustration. Here's what I'm thinking of in particular. This question of, of, uh, of income. And now here are three compelling reasons why you ought to obey. Do you not understand a believer's identity in Christ. That's verse 5. Do you not understand how many of the wealthy, remember in James' particular context, are actually responsible for oppressing? They're actually the ones who are responsible for oppressing you. So why would you show them favoritism? And then the third reason, do you not understand that these particular rich who are oppressing others and in particular oppressing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in doing so, they're blaspheming the name of God. So why would you show deference to them? Are they not the ones, verse 7, who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And then there is a fourth heading. It is a rebuke. And it begins in verse 8. It carries on all the way through to the end of verse 13. Just look at the 8th and ninth verses. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, what is the royal law? Here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you have violated the royal law. Therefore, what does James say in the rest of verse 9? You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And in the remainder of this section, he goes on to develop that, that those who break even this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself by showing partiality, are guilty of transgressing the law. Therefore, they come under the condemnation of the law. And so what does he say in the 12th verse? So speak. Oh, bear this in mind. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, why is this so significant, James? Why does he expend so much energy and spill so much ink dealing with this subject, this sin of showing partiality. I think the simple answer is found way back in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 34, where we read what? God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. God does not have favorites 
on the basis of income. He does not have favorites on the basis of race. He does not have favorites on the basis of culture. He does not have favorites nor preferences on the basis of any external appearance. No, God has his people. And these people are the object of his eternal delight. God with God, there is no partiality. And so for James, the connection is obvious. That if God has brought us forth by the word of truth, going all the way back to the first chapter, verse 18, if God has brought us forth of his own will by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, that we should be part of the new creation. In other words, that the image of God should be restored in us. Then as part of that image that we are now reflecting as we become increasingly Christ-like, is this wonderful truth that with God there is no partiality. Well, if in my life I am showing partiality, then what am I doing? I am clouding, not merely clouding. I am distorting, not merely distorting. I am destroying the image of God. With whom there is no partiality. There are your four headings. There is the thrust of the text. There is a command. There is an example. There are compelling reasons. And then there is a rather harsh rebuke. There is a lot in here. Because it is so significant to James, because he gives such attention to it, and because it is common in our day, and because it is a secret sin, yet a sinister sin, I think it is worth our time to pause and work through these verses slowly and intentionally, seeking God's wisdom and what it is by the Spirit of God He has to say to us. And so what I am going to do, here's what I am proposing to do. Now that we've got our, our minds around the text and we understand the central thought, that command, I'm going to emphasize 11 reasons, 11 reasons uh, why we must heed James' command. It's not strong enough. I used the word compelling before. Let me, let me not stick with that word. I, I, 11 urgent, 11 urgent reasons uh, why this text is for us, why this text speaks to us, and why we must be diligent, exercise utmost diligence to ensure we are obeying that command. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So I said 11, right? I'm going to give you five this morning. In the remainder of our time, quickly, I'm going to give you five, maybe only four as I glance at my watch. And next Sunday, we'll look at the remainder, whether it be six, seven, or eight. We see how, we'll see how it goes. But here's reason number one. Urgent reason why we must listen to James and heed his command. Reason number one, showing partiality makes religion worthless. Makes religion worthless. Where do I get that from? Let me preface my remarks by saying this. The chapter breaks 
are unfortunate. The chapter breaks are not inspired. They are inserted. When you read an epistle like James, please understand it's just one long letter, no breaks. The chapter breaks, I know they serve a useful purpose, but at times they can give us a misunderstanding. They almost give us this feel that thoughts are disjointed, unrelated, disconnected. There is no disconnect between chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 1. And so if you dive back into the end of chapter 1, what do we discover? We discover that James has very, very clearly differentiated between, on the one hand, pure and undefiled religion, and on the other hand, worthless religion. When it comes to pure and undefiled religion, his central point has been this. Look, those whose religion is pure and undefiled in the sight of God are doers of the word. And their religion bears three marks. Number one, a bridled tongue. You see that in verse 26? Number two, a compassionate heart. That's right there in verse 27. They visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And the third mark, an unstained life. They keep themselves unstained from the world. And so there we have pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. Those who are effectual doers. They look at the word. They see what God wants. And what do they do? They actually do it. And they persevere in it. And that obedience is manifested in many ways, James hones in on those three. A bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, an unstained life. That's group number one. But he's also introduced group number two over here. It's no longer pure and undefiled religion, but it is what he calls in verse 26, worthless religion. Pure and undefiled religion. Those who are effectual doers of the word. Worthless religion. Those who are mere hearers of the word, not merely mere hearers, but forgetful hearers. They're confronted with God. They are confronted with the character of God. They are confronted with the will of God. It is clear. It is there in black and white. They turn away and they immediately forgotten what they had seen. They have not forgotten it cognitively. It is simply this. It has made no lasting impression upon the soul. Well, what does this worthless religion look like? I know what this pure and undefiled religion looks like, bridal tongue, compassionate heart, unstained life. What does a worthless religion look like? That is what James now embarks to describe beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. And it goes almost right through to the end of the book. He is describing worthless religion. And here is the first mark of worthless religion. It is showing partiality. It is showing, revealing that we don't really get it. It is showing that the application between God, His character, His will, and our lives falls so far short that the image which He is rebuilding, reconstructing, renewing in His people, it is still so clouded that we have failed to apply the most simple of commands. We have failed to reveal His character in its most simple, basic expression, that there is no partiality with Him. Showing partiality makes religion worthless. Here is James' second reason. Showing partiality contradicts what it means to hold the faith in Jesus Christ. My brothers, verse 1. 
show no partiality. He could have put an exclamation mark there and that's it, moved on. No, as you hold. In other words, please understand how inconsistent this is, how antithetical this sin is to what it means to hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we need to think about the Lord Jesus. We need to think about how he came in humility. We need to think about how he lived in humility. We need to think hard, long and hard, about how he served in humility. And we must give very careful thought to how he died in humility. The Lord Jesus exchanged wealth for poverty. He exchanged majesty for humility. He exchanged a throne for a manger. He exchanged the admiration of angels for the rejection of humans. He exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. We hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if this is our Lord Jesus Christ, if this is the one in whom we rest, if this is the one to whom we look for salvation, if this is the one who is our hope of glory, then surely we ought to hold the faith in Him as is commensurate with who He is and recognize how showing partiality is absolutely diametrically opposed to His very nature. The third reason James gives is this, still in verse 1, showing partiality belittles Christ. The Lord of glory. As so I look at that phrase, it's not a throwaway phrase. Read the verse again in its entirety. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith that our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he could have just ended it there, but he doesn't. He adds another phrase, a descriptor. The Lord of glory. Why say that? It's not, it's not an afterthought. It's not a throwaway thought. It is actually central to the commandment and what he's trying to convey. Do you understand who the Lord Jesus is? Yes, do you understand whose humility, firstly? Do you now appreciate his glory, secondly? And do we understand that he is glorious in power? No rivals. Do we understand that he is glorious in wisdom? Incomparable. And we understand that He is glorious in goodness. His goodness abounds to sinners, all who come to Him in faith and repentance. Do we understand His glory? When we see His glory, do we not therefore see ourselves accordingly? The more we see His glory, then surely the lower we become in our own estimation. And surely the higher we esteem others and hold them in our estimation, surely there is this, this correlative effect that as our appreciation is heightened, our estimation for Christ who is the Lord of glory enlarged and increased, that as we look out at our fellow believers, we begin to value and esteem them accordingly. And there is therefore no longer room for what? The sin of partiality. Here is the fourth reason James gives as to why we must heed this command. Showing partiality reveals an evil, evil 
evil mind. Oh, Stephen, that's harsh. You're thinking to yourself, well, I invite you to follow along as I read the Word of God again. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and uh, a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, you show favoritism to the one merely on the basis of these externals, who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with what? Evil is the word James uses. Evil thoughts. One preacher writes the following on this very verse. At the heart of showing partiality is our own craving for glory and honor and praise. Now the mask is off. At the heart of showing partiality, favoritism, is our own craving for glory and honor and praise. We want powerful and wealthy and influential people to take notice of us. And we want to avoid the embarrassment that comes from being associated with weak and impoverished and inconsequential people. We crave glory from others. You see, we've lost sight of the Lord of glory. And we strive to avoid the loss of it. So we show partiality or give preferential treatment to those we believe can provide us with this glory. And we avoid those who we fear might undermine it. Is there any other word you can think of to describe that than the word evil? It arises from evil thoughts. That is the fourth urgent reason James impresses upon us for taking heed to his command, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the fifth as we conclude this morning. Showing partiality in verse 5 diminishes what God thinks about his people. It diminishes, cheapens, wipes out, obliterates, undermines what God thinks about his people. Fifth verse, listen, my beloved brothers. And note the threefold description of the believer's dignity. The believer's dignity. Here's where it comes from. Not their income, not their race, not their culture, not their appearance. Here's where it comes from. Inward grace. There's a threefold description of the believer's dignity. Listen, my beloved brothers. Number one, has not God chosen those who are poor? There's the first expression of their dignity. That they are the object of sovereign grace. And God himself has made them his people and he has made himself their God. Now notice the second component of this dignity. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Here's the second one. To be rich in faith. What is earthly material poverty when it comes to heavenly riches? What is income or any other of those parameters when it comes to being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus where we are seated? And now he's going to give a third component of this dignity. The first one, he has chosen those who are poor in the world. The second, he has chosen them to be rich in faith. And the third, he has chosen them 
to be heirs of the kingdom. You think they're poor. You think they're lacking. You think they're inconsequential. You think they are to be despised. You think they are relatively unimportant. Oh, my friend, you do not see them from the divine perspective. You do not see them as God sees them. He has chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. It brings me now to where I said I was going to end at the beginning. Do you recall? That quotation from Robert Murray McChain. Here it is again. And I pray by the Spirit of God, the significance of it rings in our ears and in our hearts in the light of what we've been considering from this text. The only power that can bring a child of Satan and make him a child of God is God himself. Dear friends, the power is not in us. It is not in the power given to ministers. God alone can do it. This is a humbling, humbling doctrine. There is no difference between us and the children of wrath. Some of us more wicked than they. Yet God set His love on us. If there are any here that think that they have been chosen because they were better than others, you are grossly, grossly, grossly mistaken. In the kingdom of God, And in the church of God, there are differences. And there are distinctions. God Himself has set many of these in place. But so many of the differences and so many of the distinctions that we emphasize are the very things that carry no weight, have no value in the sight of God with whom there is no partiality. Oh, we are beggars. We are beggars who have found food to satisfy our hunger. That's who we are. That's all we are. We are rebels who have found pardon and forgiveness. We are the diseased and deformed who have found healing. We are the unclean and the untouchable who have found cleansing. And we are the dead who have found eternal life. Oh, I pray by the Spirit of God that James' command comes to life. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Our Father, you are indeed marvelous in majesty. And we do pray and do ask that by a miracle of your grace this day, that you might take what you have inspired and entrusted to us, and through mere clay, you might apply it to each one gathered here in your presence. We ask that your word would come alive by your spirit, and that indeed our minds would be inclined, our hearts would follow suit, and that in all this our lives might be transformed, your kingdom might come, and the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified. We seek it from you in his most worthy name. Amen.